So thinking my body at like a size 12 is fine when I really wanted to be a size six or whatever it is for white women. <laughs> like, yes, you can do that work because it's fine. But when we're talking about other folks, you know, it's not fine. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Jessica Wilson. Jessica is a dietitian and community organizer who co-created the Amplify Melanated Voices Challenge, which went viral in 2020. She is also the author of It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies, which came out in February. And that's what we're talking about today. Jessica's work is incredible. It is challenging. It is important. I think if you are someone who has been in the anti-diet, intuitive eating, health at every size spaces for a while, this conversation may give you some really big questions to sit with. It definitely did for me. If you're newer to these spaces, I hope that this work helps you feel more welcome and more seen. So here's Jessica, but first a quick break. Okay, so I want to quickly pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you are a regular podcast listener, you have heard me shout out my beloved independent local bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael. They have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. It's a really wonderful resource in my local community, and they are now the official host of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, I'm not talking about a real brick and mortar shop, though Split Rock is that. You can go to it if you come to Cold Spring. But we now have our own official Burnt Toast section over on splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Jessica Wilson, who you are about to hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty, books on aging, every other topic that comes up here. And if you pre-order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything else in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can pre-order the book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is like a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community. To get yourself a signed copy of my new book, Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on Jessica's book and a huge list of other incredible books. And we will keep updating the shop so this will be a standing offer. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com forward slash burnt toast bookstore. Thanks so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. I have been a clinical dietitian for over a decade. The math is hard. Um, <laughs> I started in college health um, and I was taught zero things about eating disorders. And I was very excited because people in their late teens and early 20s like must want to eat food and just learn how to adult. Mm. And that sounds right. That was my assumption. Uh, <laughs> I was not ready for people to not want to eat food. Like I became a dietitian because I wanted to talk to people who wanted to eat food. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that makes sense. That does make sense. Um, and but then yeah, college, college students. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was, I was not ready. I was probably bad at it for a good two years working with people with eating disorders and disordered eating because like the nuances and complexities were just 
like not what was written in books. It was all mm-hmm. about they probably experienced trauma and this is why they have eating disorders. So this is what you have to do and ideal body weight and blah, blah, blah. Oh, man. Yeah, that was the books. Ideal body weight should definitely be part of a conversation about eating disorders. That sounds, oh, sure. sounds great. So I went from there into the health at every size community and then I went out of the every size community and into more like body political spaces and then took a break. And then here I am. We're back in. We're back in. And we're talking about your incredible new book. It's always been ours, rewriting the story of black women's bodies, which came out last month. I mean, Jessica, the book is just powerful, so important, so beautifully written. I really could not put it down. You can ask my family. I was reading it last night and ignoring them. I want everyone who works in food and bodies in any capacity to read it because it feels like such an important and desperately missing piece of this conversation. You argue that our continued focus on body positivity, on diet culture, on wellness culture, all of this is really keeping us distracted from systems and structures that truly oppress bodies and is really enabling us to avoid having a deeper and I would say probably much harder conversation about liberation. Mm -hmm. So let's start there. Why is this so crucial? Why do we need to do this reframing? I really appreciate that you teased and pulled that out. And we're actually open to this conversation because I don't feel like this is where our field is. We're still using, you know, anti-diet and diet culture and thinking that that is good enough and thinking Mm -hmm. that like that is like an umbrella enough term to like speak to everyone in their experiences. But I think, you know, Sabrina Strings has done a great job. Deshaun Harrison has done a great job of really breaking down how anti-fatness is connected to anti-blackness and therefore, you know, like structural racism and systemic inequalities. But somehow, you know, we get caught, we just like jump into what's easier. And it's easier to talk about, you know, say a drive for thinness or diet Mm -hmm. culture or like Ozempic and how, you know, that's impacting, you know, people's bodies. And thinking like that is the problem or like Ozempic is the problem when like, why are people, you know, shrinking themselves? And like, why is that happening in a cultural context? Why are we not talking about white supremacy and capitalism? And just like the safety and survival that is gained from folks by shrinking themselves. But when we talk about it, just like the drive for thinness or the thin ideal or any of these like simple conversations, like it's easier. It's a harder conversation to talk about structures. And so it keeps us really comfortable and it doesn't ask us to stretch. It doesn't implicate us in any of this stuff. Those of us who are white, those of us who are thin, et cetera, you know, we just get to talk to our people about like not wanting to, you know, be on a diet anymore. And, you know, people aren't seen in those conversations. We already know that folks of color, especially Black folks, don't see themselves within the eating disorder diagnosis. You know, that is, of course, for many reasons, but a lot of our, you know, choices to shrink our bodies and make us, you know, not as hyper-visible come from just like a safety and survival. So the more we talk about thinness, the more we talk about, you know, like the cures and wellness or, you know, body positivity, the less we're going to see our clients. And of course, that has an impact on the care we give that, you know, impacts who sees themselves Mm -hmm. within the field and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm coming at this as a journalist. I'm not a clinician of any kind. But reading your book, I was thinking a lot about how much the media has contributed to this. You know, 
the eating disorder stories that we tell. I came from women's magazines. I did a lot of harm. I talk about this. <laughs> you know, the eating disorders stories we told always centered the thin white girl. That's another layer to this. I just want to name that it's the way dietitians and therapists are approaching this work through the white lens. And it's also then being reinforced by the media's discussion of these issues. And we're seeing it for sure in the Ozempic coverage right now, which is just like yet another women's magazine story about weight loss. Let's talk a little more about this misconception that eating disorders develop when people are so concerned about their own bodies, disturbed by their own bodies, and how this leaves out anyone who's struggling because their body disturbs other people. The body positivity conversations are always meant to, you know, fix this misconception that we have about our bodies or, you know, develop cognitive dissonance. I'm putting that in air quotes mm -hmm. now because it's the idea that our bodies, you know, are fine just the way they are. And we just need to think they're fine and then they will be fine. Really, the problem is within us and the way that we can think about our bodies. But that says nothing about the messages that we're getting about our body from society. Right. right? So I may feel great <laughs> about my body, but you know, I still have to leave my house. Mm -hmm. So like making me, you know, feel great about my body does nothing right. in the context of society. So thinking my body at like a size 12 is fine when I really wanted to be a size six or whatever it is for white women. <laughs> like, yes, you can do that work because it's fine. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about other folks, you know, it's not fine. I can't think myself out of that, right, out right. of my realities. I can't think myself into accessing medical care or jobs, jobs, yeah. clothing access, all of that stuff. And it's tough because people's individual pain is valid and real, but yeah. it's just so much attention going towards this one very specific mm -hmm. experience of that pain and not enough attention going to the rest. Can you talk more about how eating disorder treatment fails Black women? And I'd also love if you want to talk to us about Lexi, who's so important in the book, and why concepts like diagnosis and recovery just don't even necessarily make sense as treatment goals for some of these folks. Totally. I'll start with a brief overview of Lexi's story, which makes sense later and why it doesn't apply to folks like her. She was a gymnast from age three and was always literally, you know, judged alongside thin white girls. And as a black gymnast, she was inherently, you know, too muscular or, you know, too powerful for the more, quote, elegant events. And she wanted to do the, you know, elegant events like beam and bars. And so in order to be judged as appropriate for that, you know, shrinking her body was only something that meant winning. Like she never thought that her purging, that her, you know, laxative or whatever cleanse situation was disordered because it just made sense. It was what she was being told to do. Right. Her Basically. scores were improving. Right. She was quote winning. Right. <laughs> what was wrong with this? This was this, the system. It was totally just normal for her. It wasn't until like I was like, you might want to eat more than broccoli mm. for dinner. She was like, mm, no. Was like, So this is the work that I do. She's like, yeah, this isn't disordered. This is normal. Mm -hmm. Black girls don't get eating disorders. Like that is for frail people. I'm not mm. interested in being thin at right. all. Right. Yeah. This is about winning. This is not about thinness. Interesting. Right. So it just wasn't like the language that we use and quote, you know, diagnose is like a drive for thinness or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And she also wasn't underweight. 
you know, she's probably technically, according to BMI standards, overweight Mm -hmm. and always being told by medical and professional folks to lose weight. Purging, all of that was never getting flagged by any other healthcare provider as something to worry about. Yeah. Except for the dentist. (laughs) Well, great. I'm glad someone noticed, but they aren't exactly equipped with any tools to... (laughs) No. And they're not going to coordinate any care. They're just going to be like, hmm, this thing. And it's like, yep, that's what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, all our recovery models that are focused, you know, on ideal body weight and weight gain and all of these things, like why would that be something someone would consider when their life is, you know, I would say exponentially better because that's, you know, entirely subjective, but like what they're doing is working is how I put it. So like this, you know, recovery questionnaire, these like steps of like meal plan exchanges or like whatever it is, like, why would I be doing that? I don't even have an eating disorder to begin with. Like, what are you telling me to do? And that definitely makes sense in the gymnastics context, but how this is failing like all Black women, not just Black gymnasts. So Lexi found safety and survival in what she was doing in gymnastics. But I was talking, you know, about Black women who are invisible, but also hypervisible in any situation. And for those of us who have been told we're too much or, you know, we literally don't fit into certain scenarios, there can be professional and social capital gained when Mm -hmm. we literally shrink our bodies because we become less, literally, and less of a threat to people around us, more palatable. I tell the story of Mia in the book, who was in an all-white grad program and saw that people were treating her differently as she went on her, quote, wellness journey and ended up losing weight. And so me saying, you know, hi, I saw in your, you know, chart, which I did, that you have an eating disorder diagnosis. She's like, no, <laughs> that's not why I'm here. Right. Um, that might be what it says. But what she wanted was supplements to make her hair grow back. Mm-hmm. And like, that was it. She's like, mm, yeah, that's not what I have. Yeah. I'm like, this is what I'm doing because it's working. Right. Uh, and I'm like, oh, that I don't have, you know, in theory, tools to, quote, deal with this situation. Right, <laughs> this right. is not what I was taught. And so what do I do now? Yeah. What do you do? How do you navigate that where you're seeing someone? Obviously, the practices that Mia and Lexi are engaging in are taking a toll on their health. Mm-hmm. But they're also logical ways to keep their bodies safe. Mm-hmm. So how do you navigate like this obvious need for safety and also this concern that you're not eating enough? I think it's great that you use the word navigate because I feel like some people would use the word like treat, you know? Yeah, no. Because what they have going on is in theory not a diagnosis. We're not going to pathologize for what they're doing. So I think navigate is great. And this is when the conversation becomes broader. So again, like keeping it small and talking about, you know, the easy societal pressures of, you know, basic thinness or whatever it is, really scapegoats the conversation about like systems and structures and white supremacy. The solution in theory is changing society. But in those moments, all I can do is validate their reality rather than saying, actually, you know, Mm -hmm. what I need you to do is, or Mm -hmm. you would feel better if I did get caught up into that because it was like a desperation for me and it made it all about me in a moment. Mm -hmm. I was pushing what I thought she needed or like wanted to see for myself because I wanted to be able to help this person. Mm -hmm. But like the solution is not like a clinical, like quote intervention. It's a societal change. 
Right, right. Which is hard, which is... <laughs> right. So then what do you do? I right. Like, which yeah. is a, an uncomfortable <laughs> place to find ourselves. Yes. Right. And so I introduced fearing the black body and she's like, yes, this is what it is. And mm-hmm. maybe I'll read this later. But right now, this is not, you know, a conversation that I can have because this is like how I need to survive right now. There's a lot of heartbreak to this work mm-hmm. that you're doing. It's a lot of heartbreak. Yes. And it wasn't until like a month ago that I just cried after an appointment once and it wasn't even like I let it built up like I was just able to sit in that moment and shed a few tears just because it was sad not because it had anything to do with me or Mm -hmm. anything to do with that patient like this society is just trash and I'm going to be sad about that right now rather than you know making it about me and whether or not I'm able to like cure this patient or whatever it is right right. and then I moved on I was like that was sad and I'm allowing it to just be sad I mean that sounds really important, but really hard. I can imagine the struggle to sit there in the moment and not make it about you, not push. Yeah. Like, but we, we need you to eat bread. Like, uh-huh. you know, like. <laughs> I need to problem solve this. Right. I'm here to, right. like, give the solution. That's really hard. Yeah. And I mean, do you think, like, again, not to push for solutions because I understand it's the systemic change, but I guess I'm just curious what you would want to see particularly all the white dietitians and folks in the field who are not going to innately have this context, you know, who really need to do this work. As dietitians or therapists, like we just focus on the food or, you know, I am seeing someone like Mia and like you need to get to an eating disorder dietitian when it's not about the eating, you know, at all. So can I get you, you know, to somebody who can talk to you about your, you know, identity development in context Mm. so that you can, you know, see what is going on? You still get to make your own choices, but I want right. you to know that your body is not the problem. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about society. And then I always think that healing comes from community. And, you know, that isn't our body image groups or our eating disorder groups. Right. For you know, right? You're not going to find that. <laughs> not your intuitive eating group? No, no yeah. It turns out that's yeah. not going to be the solution. So, yeah, what does that community look like for folks. Yeah, I loved you talked about that in the book and and helping someone find online community, you know, with shared identities. And they were like, oh, okay, you're not sending me to a intuitive (laughs) eating group. They were like, no, I don't want to do that. You were like, Mm -hmm. no, that's because I had done that, right? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Like get into an eating disorder support group. And, you know, he had done that. (laughs) And thought that that's what I was saying again. I was like, oh, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. No, no, we're really not. I was also really struck in the book by how often, I mean, of course, there's the toxic white woman pushing this shit, like, absolutely. But there's also these moments in the book where it's another black woman talking to you about, like, this is how I need you to behave. And this concept of respectability coming up. And I wondered if we could talk about that a little bit, who is, you know, expected to perform respectability and how this is another way we're robbing black women of body autonomy. So I will start by saying, in the context of respectability, a lot of people will say, like, it's a bad thing, like, across the board for Black women to be, you know, telling other Black women how they should be acting in Mm -hmm. community and recognizing, again, the complexity that what older Black women or other Black women may have experienced and been policed for. For Laughing Loudly is a great, you know, example that I use in the book. Yeah, the woman in the bar. So my friend was being told to be quiet and stop 
basically laughing as loudly. And the older black woman was like, mm, you know, that's not how we should be acting in public, basically. And, you know, we get that. And again, you know, if we're not having those conversations, another friend of mine was talking about how, you know, they were policed all growing up and not knowing at all, like the context for this. It was just that they were acting, you know, incorrectly. There wasn't like a greater conversation about, I am worried about you. Mm -hmm. If you go out, you know, into society and how you will be treated, there wasn't any care given. It was just like, you need to not be doing X, Y, or Z thing. And so having, again, like the choice, you already mentioned the autonomy there. Like, I am worried about, you know, not even you, but like society and how it functions if we do these things, we may, you know, mitigate some of that harm. And if we do, like the problem is still not on us. So mm-hmm. like how, yeah, how right. can we have these conversations? And I saw it a lot in like the earlier 20 teens in the health at every size community. It was very much an exercise intuitively eat your way into being a good fatty. And, you know, those are well documented by fat mm-hmm. folks. But yes, yeah, the good yes. fatty respectability, we can see it in food choices, like, you know, the whole food sprouts, whatever, you know, person is trying to gain some social capital mm-hmm. by eating quinoa and kale versus like, <laughs> it definitely resonated with me, like with the good fatty pressure of like, how am I yeah. performing that I'm a fat person who exercises? I'm a fat mm-hmm. person who, you know, all of that. And as opposed to just letting, just being able to be, you talk mm-hmm. about wanting to just be basic black. To be yeah, special or any of the, or being magic. Like, yes. I just like to be average, really just be. <laughs> Trying to be magic all the time sounds exhausting. Right. And I want to talk about Lizzo too, because this is a great example that you get into where respectability politics gets layered onto her, the black magic stuff gets layered onto her, expecting her to be the person who holds all of our body positivity hopes and dreams, like (laughs) all of it. Um, A lot of pressure for one phenomenally talented person who is just trying to make great music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we really saw this in 2020, you write about this in the book, when the whole smoothie debacle. So Lizzo was very open and honest about having like a very crappy, a lot of 2020 or a, a really crappy October and, you know, November or whatever month it was, decided to do like a 10-month smoothie cleanse. And for some people, that is as far as they've read into the situation. I had, you know, fat friends who were, you know, discussing like cleansing, like she was doing this like juice cleanser, whatever it is, but, you know, digging in, it was like smoothies and, you know, almond butter and apples and like other protein bars or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. But how easily just like that was the you know, Lizzo has gone against the body positivity rules. Like she right. said, she cleanse. has failed us. Right. Yeah. She said smoothie. She said cleanse. Right. This is over. Like my love affair with Lizzo and everything that I had like put onto her, you know, to make me feel better about my body is over because she said the word cleanse. I understand people getting triggered by other people's behaviors, but like, how have you put so much of yourself into Lizzo's <laughs> existence that this is devastating? You don't know for you? her. Yes. No, she owes you nothing. Thing. Like, I don't understand. It was, you know, thin folks having like commentary about why not to cleanse and cleansing this, this and that. And sure, do people do like whatever quote program she was on for weight loss or whatever it is? Maybe, but you know, she doesn't owe us like yeah. anything. Yeah. And I mean, she is a person existing in a world, giving her all kinds yeah. of messages and pressures. And mm-hmm. are we expecting her to like 
never have any reaction. You know, even if she was yeah. pursuing weight loss, like that's her own business. Right. She's dealing with her own shit. People are always, yeah, calling her, you know, telling her to put more clothes on and, you know, right. that she's too right. fat. So right. like in a world, you know, as a black woman, like even if she was trying to lose weight, I get it. Like, yeah, it sucks. It was really interesting to see that backlash. And I admit, I, you know, I had a moment of like sadness. I don't feel that Lizzo owes me her eating habits, but I just had a moment of like, oh, you know, just like hearing sure. the word cleanse. And to be honest, I'm uncomfortable with it because I'm thinking more recently, there's this whole thing with Gwyneth Paltrow with that new yes. video detailing Ice her cubes. <laughs> yes, all of all of it. And that to me feels so much more overtly harmful because Gwyneth mm. is detailing behaviors mm -hmm. in very specific ways. And she's also selling a lot mm -hmm. of these things. And Lizzo was like, this is something I'm doing for me. She wasn't like selling it in quite the same. So I don't know if that feels like the distinction to you or if. No, it's a really thoughts. good point. Um, yeah. I didn't see anybody being triggered by Gwyneth. They were laughing at her and talking yeah. about how it was, you know, basically it was an eating disorder. Like that right. was super easy. Like right. not eating anything but bone broth and vegetables. Right. Like that's easy. But yeah. I didn't see like the think pieces. I saw the think pieces on like why she's weird and yes. selling us her silliness for sure. But it wasn't like, and I'm triggered because I was looking, you know, to Gwyneth, but like both are celebrities mm -hmm. and I mean, both owe us nothing. Right. But why are we like so accepting of a thin white woman like telling us she's actually disordered versus somebody saying that she's only eating almond butter apples smoothies protein bars whatever i think it is because nobody looks to gwyneth for body acceptance you know mm -hmm. you look to her as aspiration of like mm -hmm. the thin white ideal That's that i'm point. striving for but mm -hmm. you don't look to her to feel better about your own body <laughs> correct and lizzo people want her to do that emotional work for them that's a great connection. It's a complicated one. Okay, speaking of annoying white people, can we talk about Walter Willett? Yes, uh, we can. <laughs> there is a chapter in your book where you go to this thing called the Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives Conference. It was a, a shit show. Yeah. And it really makes clear this intersection between healthism and racism that I would love to get into. And maybe we should start by talking about what healthism is, because that might be a newer concept for folks. And then we can talk about Walter. I think of healthism as the morality of being a, quote, healthy person. I put healthy also with a capital H yeah. because it's a social construction. At Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives, it meant like the absence of disease and the quinoa and kale and olive oil lifestyle. Like one, you were not unhealthy. And two, you were eating in all these ways and exercising in these ways and performing capital H health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like there is no, like we have collectively as a society like decided on what health looks like there is no absolute metric by any means and so then the purity and morality of all of that and you know a lot of people have critiqued health at every size for healthism as well you know doing these things in order to be healthy as a fat person lifestyle change yourself out of everything and not even lifestyle change but like meditate yourself out mm -hmm. of things like mm -hmm. you won't actually have to take medication if you do x y and z things and that's something you should aspire to right we yeah. frame taking medication which is receiving health care we frame right. as like a failing mm -hmm. like it's a last resort you only do that if you can't get your lifestyle under control right as opposed mm -hmm. to that being like a pretty necessary way for a lot of us to exist in the world yeah yeah totally and 
healthy kitchens, healthy lives, like made clear. And as we know, like health is not poor. Health, of course, it's not black and brown. Health is very thin. And depending on what, you know, five-year span we are, it might be fit. It might be, oh gosh, might be bulky. It might be, you know, very however we want it to be. Mm-hmm. Like whatever health is changes. Right. And of course, like health is BMI and all of that jazz as well. And at that conference, it was also not eating nearly enough food. Like you kept describing, <laughs> it was like a prune and strawberry shake. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I know. I was like, oh wait, I hadn't, you know, put together the Walter Willett of it all and the public health of it all. And I just got like very scarcity, like about food situation going yeah. on. I was like, what if they don't have eggs for breakfast? What if it's vegan? What if everything is vegan? I'm just yeah. never gonna, you know, be yeah. full on anything. No, um, and that's... Yeah. And the portions were teeny tiny. It was very like tea time yes. vibes. Little plates. Nobody really wanting to admit that they're hungry, even though it's like chicken lunchtime. <laughs> and like, of course, you need to eat food. You're sitting in this nine-hour conference. Mm-hmm. I was very glad you got tacos or nachos or something at night um, to night. survive. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so they had you there on a panel. So talk a little bit about like what you thought you were doing at the conference and what they <laughs> wanted you to be doing at the conference. Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives had invited me to talk about health disparities. This was their first, you know, time back in person, quote, post-COVID. And they needed to talk about health disparities because apparently they just hadn't before. And because it was, you know, 2022, they needed at least one Black person. I was the only Black person speaking at this conference, which was wild. And our panel was, of course, the end on the last day. So if people had left beforehand, they wouldn't have to sit through, you know, what I was going to say. And initially it was going to be a presentation. And I was always like very confused. You know, I was just hearing that this person, Walter, it's not given a last name, needed to approve these slides because it's all part of a quote curriculum that needed to be approved. And it got down to like the things that I had wanted to say, like the way that the structures and systems are causing the health disparities. It's not like the humans, Mm -hmm. like themselves, like we are not health disparities, which is always what your blackness, your brownness, your fatness, your queerness, like all of those things that you are, are the health disparities. Like, no, no, no. It's how we treat people are the problems. And they were like, "Mm, I don't know. And I was like, I would like to critique the Mediterranean diet. They're like, um, oh yeah. (laughs) No, I don't, I don't think we can do that. Walter's not going to like that. (laughs) "Mm -hmm." It was bananas. Anyhow. So I ended up on a panel with uh, another woman of color and a white dude about health disparities. You know, why wouldn't there not be a white dude on a panel about health disparities? Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. And I talked about fat phobia, anti-fatness, racism. That was the first time anybody had like named racism and white supremacy in a presentation on the last day in the last hour after like talking about food insecurity forever and never mentioning like food apartheid. And 
the people in the audience, like there was the like stares, but also like there were the noddings, like there were the aha moments when Mm -hmm. I was talking about health disparities, particularly in people's bodies being risk factors. I, you know, said as a black person, I would not walk into an office and you would not like immediately say you need to not be black. But when a fat person walks into your office, yes, what you're going to say is that they need to not be themselves. It was those moments that people were like, oh, I see, I see. And then you know, mostly the silence. And then the most stark moment was when like Walter got back to the podium and thanked the dude, the white guy for talking and then wrapped it up like and said like what he had said was very important. But the other two, you know, the women of color on the panel didn't mention us at all, didn't didn't make us at all. It was like case closed. It's like we weren't there. It was wild. And for folks who don't know, just say who Walter Willett is and like his sort of position in the health very esteemed researcher and was the director of the nutrition department at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He's an emeritus, I believe, right now, Mm -hmm. but still highly regarded. He's the what? I believe father of nutrition research is how they refer to him. He's got like a gazillion publications all about the Mediterranean diet and heart disease and how we're all basically going to die if we don't start eating I interviewed him several (gasps) times many years ago in my women's magazine phase and... Uh, let's just say everything about your chapter really just like I was like yep (laughs) yep yep they were hard interviews because you know I was in a weird place of like starting to do this and learning and do this work but I'm reporting from Marie Claire magazine like I'm not getting taken seriously as a journalist because I'm a woman from a woman's magazine in that context Mm. and he's a you know man who knows all about nutrition so there's that thing to navigate. And I was very much in a health at every size framework at that point. But even that is like pretty wild. So, you know, Walter's not here for the health at every size framework. (laughs) So I'm trying to ask those questions and it's just like talking to a wall. And I felt like I really understood that experience much better after Catherine Flagel published Mm -hmm. her piece. So for folks who don't know, she was a longtime CDC epidemiologist who published a lot of the literature reviews showing that higher BMI does not correlate with instant death the way we are taught. <laughs> yeah. And Walter Willett is one of the researchers who just like eviscerated her for that work and, you know, public shaming and so much blatant sexism and fat phobia. So nothing about this was like super surprising, but I'm really sorry you had to experience it. And also, I'm so glad you wrote about it because mm-hmm. we need these godlike men to be deconstructed. So thank you. I appreciate the empathy and sympathy for sure. But, you know, I'm like, oh, I did say yes to this. But that's just like how I have navigated all of these spaces. I've not been like a martyr, like if somebody else, you know, doesn't like if I don't, then somebody else won't. But like, I'm like, what actually goes on here? Right. It's like how right. it's fascinating. How are, these, to yeah, see. how are all these policies created by this one guy? So how does that work? Like, why are people so enamored? I was like, I really want to see this for myself. I don't want to just critique blindly. I mean, it's fascinating because, like, these are supposed to be scientists with some kind of scientific objectivity. And yet there's so much cult of personality. And, you know, it's really not very objective at all. The other important critique that we've touched on a little bit, but I want to make sure we spend a few minutes on, is 
how you get into the problems with health at every size and with intuitive eating and how these concepts do not go nearly far enough to actually serve folks because they are not articulating the existence of racism and just have so many other problems. So, yeah, I would love if you want to talk a little bit. I realized that was like a giant question. I'm basically like, <laughs> yeah. just say chapters three through seven of your book. But Oh, um, okay, okay. No. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, let's talk about intuitive eating. I think that's something that people throw out is a term that feels really comfy mm-hmm. and safe and like the opposite of all the things they're trying to get away from. So mm-hmm. it's maybe unnerving for folks to hear like, wait, Jessica doesn't like intuitive eating that much. Like, what's up? People, yeah, have definitely come and been like mad and angry about my critiques of intuitive eating because they hold on to it so much. I find from their own recovery, like if it wasn't helpful for them in shock and surprise, they're mostly all thin white women who were like, this worked for me. I'm like, it's Mm -hmm. supposed to work for you. Of course it did. Who they made it for. Yeah, (laughs) of course. You know, I'm not talking necessarily to you or trying to validate your experience because it totally worked. Okay. I will back up and say that I was 1000% an intuitive eating dietitian. I was held at every size, intuitive eating 1000%. This is the way to go. This is not dieting. This is listening to your body. What could be wrong with that? Like really intuitive just as a word sounds amazing. But just me trying to have more complex conversations with particularly the health at every size and ASDA communities, the think tank there and trying to bring in race specifically and fatness and blackness, there was just no receptivity to it at all. I was told that this is actually just about fatness. Like there's no need for us to talk about other (laughs) uh, intersecting identities. But uh... (laughs) Right. So thanks, Jessica. What we like is that you're a person of color at this table, but could you just be quiet and be here so that we can like say that, you know, you're at our table. That's so disappointing. Yeah. I'm like, "Uh, no, No. that's not really not what I'm going to do. And so then I, you know, decided to not be a thoughtful that every size provider anymore because it wasn't helping the people who were in my community at that time. And I moved, you know, to the Bay Area and were very involved in like body politics. And a lot of those people were queer, they were trans, fat, you know, folks of color and multiple intersecting identities. And they were like, yeah, this whole health at every size thing, it's great for, you know, fat white women with healthcare and money. But it's not helping me when I go to the doctor's office. So this like card of, you know, health at every size principle is not helping me, you know, access health care to be treated like human. And is that because it's just like a provider interacting with someone with multiple intersecting identities is just like that's just another barrier you've kind of thrown up at that point? Like to be presenting this card and they're like, this is my health at every size manifesto because they're already dealing with so many barriers. If they Mm -hmm. piss them off by not getting on the scale, then like that doesn't help them get the health care they need. Mm -hmm. The performance for our health care providers, for sure. And how, again, that's, you know, safety and survival. Yeah. My friends were saying like, I'm still black or I'm still brown. Yeah. When I go to the doctor's office. So like them not weighing me or me having like perfect lab results is still not going to protect me from the medical racism that I'm experiencing there. So that's nice for you. Like this is our reality. And so I started having more conversations there. And at the same time, I was having, you know, like intuitive eating groups and the people again in my groups were 
more on the, you know, body politics understanding and like intersecting identities. But we're also like great at questioning, intuitive eating, like would go through the book and been like, okay, tell me when I'm supposed to eat. Tell me what is too full. Tell me what to do if it's lunchtime and I'm not hungry. Do I eat then when I'm not hungry? Like 21 questions of like how to do intuitive eating well. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh goodness. Like when you were dieting, this was laid out for you perfectly. And then, you know, intuitive eating, you're looking for like the same safety and structures from intuitive eating. So maybe like that is not the conversation that we need right, to be having. Right. Yeah. People don't have access to food. Of course, people who have experienced trauma or for whatever reason, like don't have access to bodily cues. People who have, you know, food aversions, like there's so many right. things that would interrupt and make, you know, intuition not applicable but again like we're still providing 10 principles like it looks very familiar to like the safety i found in whatever i was previously doing right it's another plan i can try to implement one thousand percent and until the most recent edition it had like cope with your emotions without Mm -hmm. food yeah and like that sounds very familiar. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> Never eat emotionally. Hmm. Yeah. I think I've heard that before. It's making it the hunger fullness diet, not yeah, right. And all the language around like eating, making decisions about what to eat based on your hunger, as if we don't ever eat for reasons beyond hunger is no. so overly simplifying things. Never for pleasure. It was after I published the book. I think I was reading an article about intuitive eating and how someone like ordered chocolate cake because she wanted it. I believe this was Alicia Resch who was talking to somebody else about intuitive eating at an interview. And then, you know, she ate three bites and like pushed it away. And the person, you know, in the interview was just like marveling at her self-control, like to only eat three Mm -hmm. bites. And I'm like, this is weird. Yeah. This is weird. If she had finished it or whatever, like we're going to be fine. Like tomorrow's going to be Tuesday. (laughs) We're all going to be The amount of cake is really not the question here. I write a lot about these issues in parenting. And, Mm. you know, with kids, there's a lot of talk in the division of responsibility model about letting kids decide how much they should eat, which is Mm -hmm. a great principle. Absolutely. But it's often framed with the promise of you will then get kids who can take or leave the treat foods who don't eat the cookies. And I mean, I've been guilty of this. Like I've used this language. And then really reflected on it because it's like, wait, the goal is not the kid who's like, I don't care about Oreos. I Mm -hmm. have like no response to Oreos. The goal is the kid who can enjoy Oreos and not feel guilty about it afterwards. And so the amount of Oreos they eat is totally beside the point. Mm -hmm. But I think often it gets sold to parents as like, this will fix picky eating because this will get your kid to be less interested in treats and more interested in vegetables. And it's like, well, that's just the same as another diet. Mm Mm-hmm. I think about community care in this aspect. Um, Lexi likes to tell the story about how when, so she had to come stay with us during COVID for a variety of reasons, including, you know, personal loss and grief. So she ended up at our house and she, it was like the second or third day. I don't know. We all went and did like a giant grocery shop and she came back and had like a bag of mini peanut butter cups and I you know walked away to do something and came back she was watching like a movie or television with my spouse I walked away I came back shortly after and the bag was empty and I'm like oh okay like I'm curious about that she's like oh yeah it's sugar stomach like that's just a thing that happens I'm like oh like what's what's sugar stomach stomach? she's (laughs) she's like well 
you get something that you're not allowed to eat. You eat it all because, you know, you're not supposed to eat again tomorrow. And then you don't end up eating dinner because you have sugar stomach and you're too full. I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. Is this how you, you know, think about all things with, you know, sugar in them? She's like, yes, of course. Like, and that is from, you know, all of my upbringing. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went and got like the best peanut butter cups, the Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, yes. <laughs> yes, I will fight you over that. Those are the best ones. <laughs> it is known. Yes. <laughs> and so I went and got them for myself. And, you know, when I would eat them during the day, I would just like walk past her and like leave, you know, one or two or a handful or whatever. And she said, at the beginning, I was mad. Like how, like I'm, I'm just eating two. Or like, what if I didn't want, like, what if I wasn't like thinking or craving them right now? But now I'm just eating two. And, you know, at the end, she left and thankfully for me, like left half a container of those peanut butter cups in the fridge because it was like, whatever. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's what community care can look like because yeah. now you're able to eat as many of them as you want to. Right, right. And feel fine because right. they're delicious. I want you to feel fine after peanut butter cups. Right, right. And it's not that, oh, you only ate two or you left yeah. half a container. It's that you were able to engage with this food in like a positive yeah. way without having a whole thing about it. And never eating them again, quote, never yeah. eating them again, but right. also eating them again. <laughs> right, right. We wrap up every episode with a fun little segment called Better for Your Burnt Toast. This is just something that is bringing you joy right now. So, Jessica, what's your better? It's stereotypical to be a food thing, but I'm still going to recommend tater tots in the air fryer. Oh, that sounds great. Yep. They can be made into so many things or eaten just by themselves. They're a food that I stopped eating at whatever age, but have brought back as a 40 plus year old and I'm very happy about it. That sounds great. And do you ketchup, other condiments or just straight? All of the above. I have them with eggs. I have them on the side of things. You can make them into like nachos or whatever you want to. I know. that idea. (laughs) Everything. All the yeah, ones. just mm-hmm. as like a good fundamental base of a meal. Yeah, like <laughs> how can tots. I plan my meal around tater tots is, yes, as the <laughs> primary food. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. My better this week is just a little practical hack for fat folks. As my body changed, a lot of my necklaces didn't fit anymore. And I don't know. I didn't expect this is one of those things where you're like, oh, I didn't know necks get fatter. Of course they get fatter. It's great. It's fine. But it was a little like a moment of sadness. I had some favorite necklaces that I couldn't wear anymore. And I just discovered necklace extenders are a thing that they sell. You can get them on Etsy. You can get them on Amazon, like wherever. And they're just like a little extra two inches of chain that you can clip onto your necklace so that a necklace that has gotten too tight now fits like I'm wearing one right now. And it's like, oh, it just fits. Yeah. It's like such an easy hack, and I just want to make sure that everyone knows about it because it's bringing me a lot of joy to have, like, favorite necklaces back in rotation. Mm. Such a small thing, but, yeah, yeah, been really nice. Cool. Jessica, thank you so much again. This is phenomenal. Tell listeners where we can follow you and how can we support your work. I am on Instagram at jessicawilson.msrd. I am going to try my way at the TikToks. I'm oh, very God. excited for this journey. I am at <laughs> by Jessica Wilson. I've started, yeah, collaborating with some young folks and, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to make the, the move. I'm there too. And um, oh. we can go on this journey together, maybe. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm there and I'm, I'm struggling, you know. <laughs> uh, book talk apparently is a thing. So yeah. like book and life and food, yeah. like there's so many options. <laughs> We're working on it. We're. 
That sounds great. And then yeah. the book is on audiobook, ebook, and bookstores wherever books are sold. And it is. It's always been ours rewriting the story of Black women's bodies. Thank you, Jessica. This was wonderful. You're welcome. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. Please also leave us a rating or a review. It really helps folks find the podcast. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. The paid subscriptions are what enable me to pay honorariums to all of our podcast guests, which is critical for centering marginalized voices in this space. You also get a ton of cool perks and keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent body liberation journalism.